Well, let me ask you to turn one last time in this series to the book of Romans in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning we do come to our final message on this wonderful chapter. This chapter has been full of glorious and important, vital truth. Two themes have been preeminent. The theme that began the chapter, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the theme that ends the chapter, no separation. No condemnation and no separation are the chief themes of Romans 8. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Dear friend, if you are in Christ Jesus, believing on Him, trusting in Him, there is no condemnation for you. There is no angry God in heaven looking down on you. God's righteous justice has been satisfied through Christ at the cross. So that if you are in Christ, God looks upon you only with love and compassion and tenderness and care. And that's how the chapter begins. And as it makes its way through various truths, especially truths concerning the Holy Spirit, Paul is bringing us to this great truth, that when you have no condemnation through Jesus Christ, what you also get is no separation from God in Christ. Dear Christian, your God is with you and will forever be with you. From the very beginning, Paul has been connecting being justified with God through Jesus with being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. If God is not with you, it is because His Spirit is not in you, and that is because you are not a Christian. You are still under condemnation. But if the Spirit of God is in you and at work within you, then you can be assured that you are a child of God. Your body is going to be raised from the dead on the last day. You're going to enter a glorious inheritance. And what you're going to experience in that new heavens and that new earth will far surpass anything you've ever experienced in this life. So Paul makes this connection all the way through the book. No condemnation means no separation. So that even in this fallen world, this groaning world, you can have hope. The Spirit of God within you is interceding for you. God is working all for your good. He has foreknown you, predestined you, called you, justified you, and you can be absolutely certain He is going to glorify you. Dear Christian, you are never alone, and the God who is with you is always working on your behalf. He is for you. And because your God is for you, nothing can ever be against you. Not ultimately. Not truly. Last week we saw that 
Though tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword all come against you, trying to squelch your faith, trying to separate you from the love of God, they will never prevail. You are more than a conqueror through Christ who loved you. Dear friends, the great goal of Romans 8 is to show the Roman Christians, to show the Christians at Mount Hermon, to show Christians all around the world how secure they are in the love of God so that they will be encouraged to live bold lives of obedience to Christ. What should be the effect of Romans 8 on our lives? It should be that we become a bold people, a confident people, a people who give ourselves courageously, unashamedly to the obedience of God. Even if it means putting our neck on the line, we're willing to do it because nothing, not even death, can separate us from our God who loves us. So this morning, Paul continues this awesome theme. I want to begin reading in verse 35. We're going to begin reading in verse 35. And verses 38 and 39 will be our focus. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see the opening words in verse 38. I am sure. That's where Paul wants you to be this morning. That's where God, dear Christian, wants you to be this morning. I am certain. I am sure that nothing can separate me from God's soul-saving, faith-upholding, guaranteed to go to heaven and be with Him forever, love. Can you say that, dear friend? Can you say that? Can you say it with with full confidence from your head to your toes? My God is with me and He's never going to leave me and He's going to keep me believing to the day I die and I will enter into the glorious presence of my Savior. Can you say, I am sure? If you're a Christian, not only can you say that with biblical authority, but you should say it. And you should especially say it to yourself a lot. (laughs) You should tell yourself this all the time. Why is Paul stressing our security in Christ so much? Why have we been seeing this same theme restated again and again in verse after verse after verse? It's because we are so prone to forget it. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the difficult Monday, these truths that we hold to be so precious 
can slip away just like that. We sit here on Sunday morning and we say, yes, my God is for me. My God will never leave me. I am secure. And then we go to the mailbox on Monday and there's that hospital bill and we break down in tears wondering how we're ever going to get it paid. Or someone says something insensitive and hurtful to us and we suddenly feel the need to defend ourselves as if our security has been shaken. Or we see someone in need and we choose not to help them because we got to make sure we can take care of ourselves first. All of these responses are a blatant contradiction of what we've just said on Sunday. If I am secure in Christ and know that nothing can take me out of His love and keep me out of heaven, why in the world am I going to worry about a bill? If I follow Jesus and keep trusting and obeying Him, He is going to take care of me. Why in the world would I feel the need to defend myself against a hurtful remark? I'm fine. I'm going to heaven. Let me look with compassion on the person who has said this thing. Let me overcome evil with good. Love overlooks a multitude of sins. Even if helping that person in need means risking a little bit of my own financial stability or whatever else, am I not secure in Christ? Am I not okay? As Christians, we know who holds the future, and thanks to the Bible, we also know what the future holds. <laughs> we, knows what's, we know what's coming for us. We know the heaven that's ahead and the glories of Christ. Mount Hermon, if we believe these verses, if we let the security that Paul is just oozing in these verses come into our bloodstream, it will change us forever. Forever. Do we want to be bold witnesses for Christ in Rocky Mount? Do we want to make a difference? Let these verses get into you. Let them grip you. And never let you go. The effects of believing these verses will be not only good for you, but will have life-giving effects on those you know, on those that you have relationships with. Your co-workers, your neighbors, your children, grandchildren, your, your spouse. They need to see that Jesus is enough for you. They need to see that you have such confidence in Him that it changes the way you're living. It changes the way you respond to the circumstances of your life. Dear friends, what difference is what you're hearing on Sunday making in your life? Do the people around you see you being changed by the Word of God? Where all these awesome truths we've been studying having no lasting effect. One year we've been studying this chapter. Has it affected at all the way you respond to tough moments in your life? To trials? To decisions? Are we being doers of the Word? Allow me to make a few observations from these two verses. First, note that the love of God comes to us 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. So do you see that in verse 39? Verse 39, nothing can separate us from the love of God, and that's God the Father, but how does the love of God the Father come to us? Especially when you remember that He is transcendent, He is immaterial, He is an almighty spirit, and we are frail physical creatures. There's this huge, infinite gap between us and God. So how does God's love come to us? Answer, through the God-man, through the only mediator, through Jesus Christ. Friends, God has placed all of His love for His people into the person of Jesus Christ. If you do not know Christ, you do not know the love of God. Not the saving love of God. Not the redemptive love of God. Not the fatherly love of God that works all for your good. It is only through Christ that we come to know the love of the Father. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter what religious rituals you participate in. If you have not been brought into unity with Jesus Christ, you have not yet come to know the love of God that is higher than the mountains and deeper than the oceans and broader than the vast expanse of the universe. God is an infinite fountain of love, but Jesus is an infinite storehouse. Jesus is an infinite well. And God takes His infinite love for His people and He pours it into this infinite well called Christ Jesus. And we receive the love of God the Father as we drink from the well of Christ Jesus. This means, by the way, that we must never draw a dividing line between God the Father and Christ the Son, pitting the Father and the Son against one another. Have you ever heard the gospel presented this way? Because I have. This is, this is presented as the Father is the wrathful God. The Father is the angry God. The Father is the one who's out to get you for your sins. And as the bullet of His wrath is coming against you, Jesus, who loves you and is merciful, steps in front of the bullet of God's wrath and saves your soul on the cross. And so you have God the Father presented to you as the vengeful God, the angry God, the wrathful God, and Jesus as as the God of mercy, the God of, of love. Friends, that characterization is absolutely wrong. The love of Jesus that moved Him to jump in front of the bullet of God's wrath for you on the cross was the love of God the Father for you in Him. John 3.16 For God, the Father, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Jesus is the image of the Father. Jesus is the fullness of the Father. Every attribute of the Father is found in the Son. There is no moral attribute in the Son that is not found in the Father. Make no mistake about it. The love that Jesus has for you is the love of God the Father for you. The love that Jesus has for His bride is the love that God the Father has for His children. 
Is God the Father angry at sin? Yes. God the Father is angry at sin. So is Jesus, by the way. Psalm 11, verse 5, clearly says that God hates the wicked. But even as God in His justice hated our sin, yet He still loved us. The cross was God the Father's idea. Jesus laying down His life on the cross was Jesus obeying His Father. I want you to listen to two of the greatest minds the Christian church has ever known as they explain this. I'm going to read from Calvin first and then from Augustine. Calvin says, God, who is the highest righteousness, cannot love the unrighteousness that He sees in us all. All of us, therefore, have something in ourselves deserving of God's hatred. With regard to our corrupt nature and the wicked life that follows it, all of us surely displease God. We are guilty in His sight. We are born to the damnation of hell. But because the Lord will not lose what is His in us, out of His own kindness, He still finds something to love. However much we may be sinners by fault, we nevertheless remain the creatures that He made. However much we have brought death upon ourselves, yet He has created us for life. And thus God is moved by pure and freely given love of us to receive us into grace. And therefore, to take away all cause of enmity and to reconcile us utterly to Himself, He wipes out all evil in us by the expiation set forth in the death of Christ so that we who were previously clean and impure may show ourselves righteous and holy in His sight. So that's, that's, that's it right there. Even as much as there is in us for God to hate, even as there is so much sin and wickedness in us for God to, to be reviled against, yet God has still look at, looked upon us with sovereign love and He has chosen to make us clean through the death of Christ. Or listen to Augustine. This is, this is just great and helpful. God's love, says Augustine, is incomprehensible and unchangeable. For it was not after we were reconciled to Him through the blood of His Son that God first began to love us. No, He loved us before the world was created that we might also be His sons along with His only begotten Son before we became anything at all. The fact that we were reconciled through Christ's death must not be understood as if His Son reconciled us to Him that He might then begin to love us. No. We have already been reconciled to Him who loves us, with whom we were enemies on account of sin. Paul says God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love this statement by Augustine. I've quoted it many times from the pulpit. Augustine says, Thus, in a marvelous and divine way, God loved us even when He hated us. It is not popular to stand in a pulpit and say, God hates you. But Psalm 11.5 and many other passages of the Bible say that 
God doesn't just hate sin. God hates the sinner. But as much as God hates sin and sinners, His love for them is even greater. His love for them is, is broader. And we see that. And that He gave His Son for us. The love of Jesus for you is the love of the Father for you. Make no mistake about it. Second, observe from this verse that those who are safe and secure in God's love are those who know Jesus Christ as Lord. Do you see that? Paul says, our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The, the us in this passage is Paul and other believers Christians in Rome, Christians in Rocky Mount. Paul does not know anything of a Christian who does not know Jesus as Lord. The word refers to one who has authority, one who is a ruler, one who is a master. Christians are not simply people who have prayed a prayer or been baptized. Christians are people who profess Jesus as Lord with their lips and esteem Him as Lord in their hearts and reflect Him as Lord with their lives. That's what a Christian is. Christians are those who used to be Lord of their own lives. Christians, we used to be like the rest of the world, controlled by our own whims, controlled by our own desires, living our own life our own way. But in the message of the Gospel, we heard of a Savior so wonderful, a King so glorious, that we submitted to this King. That we made Him our King. Christians are those who have given their allegiance to Jesus Christ above all. We have entrusted everything to Jesus and to His authority. Now, Herman, we as Christians have thrown our lot in with Jesus Christ. And what He says, we believe. What He commands us to do, we strive to do. He is the captain of our souls. And dear friend, if you do not know Jesus this way, you do not know Jesus. Jesus is not your pal. He's not your buddy that you can choose to listen to from time to time. You can, you can consider His advice and weigh it and decide whether you want to follow it or not. No one comes to Jesus that way. Not savingly. To come to Jesus is to bow the knee and to esteem Him as Lord. A third observation. Notice that in these verses, Paul is rejoicing. In the power of God. In fact, that's what these final two verses are. They are Paul rejoicing in the glorious fact that there is absolutely nothing stronger than God. God's love has been given to us and nothing is mighty enough to overcome God, overtake God, and separate us from His love. Um, Paul loves making lists. All through the epistles, Paul just, he just makes lists. He loves making lists. 
Last week he made a list, verse 35, right? A list of things that come against us to, to, to squelch our faith, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And he just rattles off this list of defeated enemies. And that's what they are, he says. He's just rattling off defeated enemies. It, it reminds me of uh, the book of Joshua. Joshua 24, verse 11, you have God speaking through Joshua to the people of Israel. Listen to what God says. God says, As you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I gave them all into your hand. What's God doing there? He's just making a list of all the enemies that were too strong for Israel, but Israel beat them. And why did Israel beat them? Because God gave them the victory. Any of these groups could have been Israel's demise, but God upheld them. God made them conquerors. In the same way that Joshua just calls off the Girgashites and the Hittites and the Perizzites. And the, in the same way Paul was saying, tribulation, distress, peril. These are no match for you because of your God. Paul was worshiping in here. And, and, and Paul continues to worship through this second list. As he writes the second list, he is inviting us into these moments of praise. Paul is glorying in the awesome power of God to keep his people safe and saved. And so he makes another list. It, it's like if I was rejoicing in the presence of God. Right? Paul's rejoicing here in the power of God. Let's say I was rejoicing in, in the presence of God, in the fact that God is everywhere. I might start making a list. I might say, if you go to China, he's there. If you go to South Africa, he's there. If you go to Argentina or Finland or Canada, God is there. If you go to the depths of the sea, if you go to the tip of Mount Everest, God is there. If you go to where they're playing the World Cup in Brazil or the deepest parts of the Amazon rainforest or you go all the way to the planet Mars or even to the vast parts of the universe, guess what? God is there. If you're like those astronauts in gravity just floating out there in space, guess what? God is there. You see, we worship through lists. And that's exactly what Paul was doing here. He gives us a list of ten items that can never separate you from God. Ten items that can never separate you from God's love in Christ. Eight of them are pairs. We could preach a sermon on each one, but we're going to spend ten minutes here and be done. By the way, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I quote a lot from the pulpit. Lloyd-Jones preached the way I do, very slowly, verse by verse, through, through books of the Bible. And um, he's lately, in the podcast I'm listening to, he's been preaching through Ephesians. And he's in like his 120th sermon on Ephesians or something like that. But I love the fact that from time to time he apologizes to his congregation for going too fast. <laughs> because he says there's so much in the verse that we could spend a month in this one verse just to unpack. And he just apologizes. He says, we could do the same thing here. I could stand before you this morning and honestly apologize to you for going too fast through Romans 8. Don't think we covered everything, church. We did not cover everything. There are depths of Romans 8 we did not even begin to step in, and we could spend a lot of time in these pairs, but, but we're not. We're going to give them 10 minutes, and so here we go. First, neither death nor life 
can separate us from God's love in Christ. Now, death feels like separation. Death is separation from everything we've ever known. Death is separation from your family. Death is separation from the only home you've ever had, the place you've lived your whole life. In the language of of Lewis and Tolkien, death is passing over to an unknown country, right? A strange new world. But death is not separation from God's love in Christ. Just the opposite. Death is coming more fully into the experience of God's love in Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your death day, dear Christian, will prove to be a far more joyful day for you than your birthday ever was. And if you are concerned about the process of dying, if you are concerned about the suffering you may experience as you die, take heart. The Savior who died a tremendously painful death for you will be with you. And He will uphold you. It is possible that your death will be the greatest trial you ever experience. But your Jesus will bring you through. Mount Hermon, do not fear death. We live in a world that fears death. Do not fear death. Death is a conquered foe. It is now your servant ushering you into paradise. But what about life? He says, neither life nor death. Spurgeon says, I must confess, I am more afraid of life than death. Oh, says one, dying is such hard work. Do you think so? Why, dying is the end of work. It is living that is hard work. I am not so much afraid of dying as I am of sinning. Sinning is ten times worse than death. And what if some of us should live for very many years? That is so much longer time for temptation and for trial. If one might have his choice, one might be content to have a short warfare and to enter upon the crown at once. In other words, do you want a long war or a short war? Right? Because the Christian life is war until we enter rest. Mount Hermon, many of you might be afraid of the trials of longer life. You might be afraid that old age will undo you. Many a person has entered into older years only to forsake Christ. But if you are a true believer, if you have known Christ and are His, that will not happen to you. Isaiah 6, 46, verse 4, Even to your old age I am He. To gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry, I will save. Neither life nor death will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our second pair neither angels nor rulers. And then we have to add in powers. Neither angels nor rulers nor powers can separate us from God's love in Christ. See, see, Paul mentions angels and rulers first, and then he moves on, continuing in pairs, and then suddenly he just sticks in powers. And it's as if he moved on and then realized he, he meant to say powers. He, he, he wants to say powers, and so he just kind of sticks it, sticks it in there. Almost all commentators agree that all three of these words, angels, rulers, and powers, refer to spiritual beings. 
And the reason we think that is because Paul uses these same words both in Colossians and in Ephesians to refer to spiritual beings. And so what Paul has in mind here is spiritual warfare. Could it be that some work of the devil, that some work of demons could take you away from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Might there be some supernatural influence against you which you might be helpless against that could pull you away from the love of God? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. Why? Because spiritual beings, including the evil one, including fallen demons, are still pawns in the hands of God accomplishing His purpose. Colossians 1.16, For by Him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus created and rules over all spiritual beings, even those that war against Him. He wields them. And in His justice, Jesus manipulates them so that all of the evil devices of the devil and demons against you actually turned on their head to do you good and to bring you safely to heaven. Third, neither things present nor things to come can separate us from God's love in Christ. So now Paul is thinking about time, things, things present, things now and things in, in the future. And Paul says there's absolutely nothing happening in your life right now that can take you away from God's love. Do you hear that? I don't know what's going on in your life right now. But I know what the Word of God just said. There is nothing in your present, nothing that can take God's love away from you. And there is nothing about your future. Oh, the worries that can fill our minds about the future. All the unknowns. All the what may happens out there on a personal level, on a family level, on a national level, on a global level. What might happen? What, what could happen tomorrow? Friend, there's nothing in the future that is unknown to your heavenly Father. Your Father has ordained the future. He will not be surprised by anything it holds. God the Father has decreed your salvation. He is the author and almighty director of history. And there is no possibility that there is anything in the future that can steal your soul away from Him. There is nothing in time that should worry you. Nothing present. Nothing to come that should cause you to tremble. You are safe in the love of God. Fourth, neither height nor depth can separate us from God's love in Christ. So first he's talking about time, now he's talking about space. And he's basically saying there's nowhere you can go where you can be brought out of the love of God. Um, Where would you go to escape the love of God? Maybe in the hospital room it might not feel like God is with you. In that nursing home room where you may find yourself living for many years by yourself, especially ladies in here, just seems to be a fact of life for so many ladies. They spend their last years in a nursing home. 
Will you still believe then, dear ladies, that your God is with you and that you're not alone? Some of you work in terrible workplaces where people just spew ungodliness out of their lips all the time. You're just surrounded by people who take the Lord's name in vain and tell the most awful jokes and they're just, it's, it's, it's hard for you to be there and you might feel alone as a Christian in that place. You're not alone. God's there too. I remember nights when our boys were really, really young, babies, and they would cry in the middle of the night and you would try and try and get them to stop crying and they wouldn't stop crying and you're just sitting and you're so tired and you're just thinking, is there any way out of this? Right? You just feel so alone. Why won't you hush up? God's there too. He's there. He's with you. You're not alone. There is no place where you can be where God's love is not being poured out upon your head every moment of every day, dear Christian. And then fifth, just to sum it all up, nothing else in all of creation can separate you from God's love in Christ. In other words, just in case you can somehow come up with something that doesn't fit one of the categories that Paul's already mentioned. And good luck with that. But just in case you can somehow come up with something that doesn't fit these other categories, he says there is nothing else in all creation that can separate you from God's love in Christ. Meaning there's nothing. By the way, is there anything outside of creation? Only God. And God's not going to change his mind. If he has saved you, he has saved you, and you are saved forever. There are only two realities in this universe, God and creation. And if nothing in creation can separate you from God's love, God's not going to separate you from God's love. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. Mount Hermon, do you feel the security that you live in? Don't live in this world looking at it through these eyes. Live in this world looking through the eyes of faith. You see a storm coming, it's God's storm. You're okay. You see the economy crashing, it's God's economy. It's okay. There is nothing in this world that's outside of His control. You are safe. So put your fears aside. Bury them and let's be about the work of obeying God in every calling He's given to us. Don't let fear of man keep you from obedience. Don't let fear of consequences keep you from obedience. Trust your Lord and obey. Let us find here the courage we need for personal evangelism, for loving our neighbors, for caring for one another, for fulfilling our callings well. And if there is anyone in this room who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you to have this great Savior for yourself. These great promises that we've been unpacking for week after week after week, these great promises are for those who will simply embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. How much would you pay to have a Savior like this? And yet He's absolutely free. You just turn from your sins and submit yourself to the greatest King this world has ever known. Mount Hermon, our study of the great eight has ended. But God's love for us in Jesus Christ 
never, never will. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.